Chapter 10, Hiring and Firing. Hey there, I'm Eric Olson. And I'm Kevin Daisy. Join us on our journey to building a $100 million company. Hey, what's happening? This is Eric J. Olson. In January of 2021, I published a book named Million Dollar Journey. I had the audio for that. It's on audible.com, but I'm going to share it with you right here on this podcast. So this is a chapter from the book. Some of these episodes are going to be long. Some will be short, but I'm going to read the whole thing to you. One chapter at a time. Here you go. After hearing it, let me know what you think on Instagram. I hang out there at eric.j.olson. That's E-R-I-K.j.olson. And without further ado, here's a chapter from Million Dollar Journey. You can go it alone or with others. Like everything in life, there are pros and cons to each way of doing things. From the beginning, I knew I wanted to build a team. I knew that would also mean personal issues and drama, and there have been many. Many entrepreneurs don't want to deal with the messiness of human resources. But the downsides of managing people is offset by massive upsides in overall productivity, the ability to specialize, and the ability to land bigger and better clients, and the sheer amount of brain power you can put towards growing your business. Hiring your first employee. While I was still employed full-time, I picked up freelancing. For the last six months of employment, before I went all in and started working full-time for myself, the freelancing consumed pretty much every free moment I had after working a full schedule. I thought that once I quit my day job, I'd have way more free time since I could freelance during the day instead of on nights and weekends. What I found was that once I was free from corporate life, I still didn't have a lot of free time. I continued to work pretty much every waking hour. This went on through the first winter and into the spring. By early summer, still working ridiculously crazy, I was about halfway through a good-sized project when another big project was awarded to me. I wanted the work. I needed the work. But I was already working my ass off and knew that it wasn't enough. I had to finish one project, move on to the next project, and keep looking for the next one after that to ensure my pipeline didn't run dry. I still had basic tasks to take care of in the business, like finishing my website and putting together a marketing plan. Up to that point, all of the work I got was from Elance and from tapping my personal network. I had yet to put in the hard work of finding more clients beyond that. I wanted to grow the company, but couldn't while I was wrapped up in these projects. I had tinkered with hiring other freelancers. They could be helpful, but they weren't exactly what I was looking for. For starters, they were more expensive than I wanted to pay. As a freelancer, your goal is to charge as much as possible per client because you typically work on short duration projects and maybe only once every few weeks. I was freelancing myself and knew that game well. Often, a freelancer would want almost as much from me as I was getting paid by my client. With most freelancers I hired, the margin between what I was getting paid by my client and what I paid the freelancer 
was sometimes only $5 an hour. Sure, that could add up if I had a slew of freelancers. But in reality, my freelancers were only billing 20 to 40 hours a week. Although I could make $100 to $200 a week off of them, it just didn't add up to enough profits. And I still had all the problems that came with managing projects and people. Also with freelancers, I was never quite satisfied with their level of commitment. Their scope of work had to be pretty rigidly defined. Otherwise, the cost could get out of hand quickly. If I wanted a fixed scope and fixed price agreement with a freelancer, it would take me time to figure out the scope. Defining the perfect scope for a freelancer would take more time than I wanted to spend on it. If it wasn't perfectly defined, then I was opening myself up to costly change orders. If I hired them by the hour, the work would mysteriously seem to take longer than I thought it should. They didn't seem committed to doing amazing work or to solving the client's problems, just to making money. What I realized was that I expected a higher level of commitment from the people I was bringing on to work with me. But it was an unrealistic expectation to put on freelancers, especially those who had day jobs and were moonlighting after hours. How could I expect a full commitment from them when I was keeping them at arm's length with a freelancing gig? Why should I expect them to commit to me when I wasn't fully committing to them? That's when I decided I needed to hire a full-time employee. Having the security of a new project under contract and the future revenue it would provide, I quickly calculated that I had enough coming my way to pay me and someone else. But the revenue I expected would only pay us both for about six months. Beyond that, I'd have to go find more work. That is, if my calculations were right in the first place. In a perfect world, you'd have enough money in the bank to pay for you and your employees for years, even if no new revenue came in. But it would take years, maybe decades, to save that much up. You simply cannot wait that long before you start growing your company. Taking some risk is required if you want to grow your company. I had never hired someone before, at least not for a company where I was the sole owner, and everything rested on my shoulders. It was nerve-wracking for sure. I went about trying to find someone on the cheap. I drafted a job description and posted it on Craigslist and in a local group forum. Interviewing only a couple of people, I luckily happened upon someone who was a fit. She didn't have a ton of formal experience, and most of it came from working on volunteer projects that benefited the community and local cities. Her experience was also quite varied, having dabbled in different frameworks and systems, but not mastering any of them. The interview went well. We clicked. Her husband was in the military and she didn't need health insurance. That was a relief to me because I hadn't yet looked into what it would take to provide health insurance to employees, but I was sure it was going to be a pain to set up and would be expensive. Later, I'd find out that I was right, but at that time, I was able to avoid that pain. Salary-wise, she was spot on with the amount of pay I had in mind. 
I'm sure she's making double or triple that now. But at the time, it was a good fit for both of us. She needed the formal experience, and I needed her contribution. Speaking with my wife after the interview, I told her that I would make sure my new hire would always get paid on time, no matter what. I was fully committed to making that happen, come hell or high water. But me? I wasn't totally confident there'd always be enough left over for me. I had done the rough calculations and everything looked like it would work, but so many variables can affect cash flow. If we didn't finish a deliverable as fast as I expected, then we'd be delayed in invoicing. If the client delayed in paying, then the cash wouldn't be there. Shoot, if the client canceled the project, I would be screwed. What if one of our laptops blew up and I needed to drop another couple thousand dollars for a high-end MacBook Pro? I still wasn't even clear about my tax situation as a new business owner. There were a lot of variables and I didn't have all the answers. In the end, I pulled the trigger and hired her. But it was the hardest decision I've made to date as a business owner. When you decide to hire someone and when they entrust their livelihood to you, that's a real commitment. And it wasn't just a financial commitment. It's their career too. And I was about to be responsible for her career development. Hiring is a huge responsibility and one you should not rush into. In the end, everything worked out great. I was able to pay her and myself without fail. We didn't encounter any major issues with the projects or the clients, and I continued to find new projects to backfill our work pipeline as we finished projects. In retrospect, I would say that I lucked out on my first hire. A lot could have gone wrong. More recently, we've enhanced the way we go about hiring new employees. We don't advertise on Craigslist anymore and instead post jobs on Indeed and LinkedIn. We could find better candidates there. We also have a more rigorous interview process consisting of multiple rounds of interviews with different staff. We run background checks and call references. Over time, your hiring practices will become more sophisticated too. But for your first hire, you just need to trust your gut. Advertise for the job and keep interviewing people until you find the person who you think has the skills you need and the work ethic to help you get your business off the ground. Continuing to build the team. Demand for our services continued to be strong. As more projects rolled in, I found myself yet again needing more help. I already had one full-time employee who was busy on a project, but I needed someone else to take on a new project. Rationalizing that one full-time employee was probably enough of a commitment for the time being, I once again tried the freelancing route. After interviewing a few candidates, I found someone who seemed to be a fit for a project that was about to start. He interviewed well and had the skills I needed for the project. I agreed to his hourly rate and sent him the freelancing agreement. He signed the papers, returned them quickly, and I gave him access to the systems he needed to get the work done. Everything was in place and he knew what needed to be done. And then, 
Nothing. Although he was Johnny on the spot during the interview and onboarding process, I guess he just wasn't interested in working. He never did anything else and never returned my emails. I'd call and leave voicemails and he never returned those either. After a couple of weeks, I gave up on him. Execution, it seemed, just wasn't in him. I hired another freelancer who did a half-assed job and never finished. I ended up having to finish out that project, which just added to my stress level and extended the already 12-hour days I was putting in at the time. Having wasted enough time trying to augment my small staff with more freelancers and remembering the previous lesson I learned about needing to commit to full-time employees, I decided it was time to hire another full-time person. At about the same time, two opportunities came my way. A programmer I already knew asked if I knew anyone who was hiring. I was also asked by a prospect if I had anyone on staff who could work from his office about 30 hours a week. I thought I could hire the programmer, have him work most of the time at the prospect's office, and use that extra 10 hours a week of his time to help me with the other projects. Having never tried staff augmentation before, where you send your employee to the client's office to work on their projects every day, it seemed like it could be a sweet business model for us. I hired the programmer and had him reporting to the client's office within a week. Although there was a financial upside to it, there was little chemistry with this new agreement. My first employee and I worked in the office side by side on a daily basis. We were in lockstep with each other, but our third employee worked 30 minutes away on a completely different kind of project. Those extra 10 hours a week I thought the third employee would have to help us with other projects never materialized, so we rarely worked on anything together. Not working together and not seeing each of each other, we had little in common. We were less a team and more a collection of freelancers. Not recognizing this fault yet and thinking that maybe staff augmentation was the model I wanted for the company, I pursued more staff augmentation contracts. We landed a $10,000 a month agreement with a local startup that badly needed our help. They lacked expertise in project management, a skill I personally was highly capable of providing. This meant a lot of my time, upward of 90% every week, would be devoted to my client and growing his business. While I spent most of my time at the new client's office, my first employee worked by herself in our office or she'd work from home, and my second employee was at his client's office. We were spread all over the place and only touched base when needed. Although we were generating revenue, we had no sense of team at all. As the most recent client's business grew, he needed more from us, and I continued to hire based on his demand. At our peak, we had five employees there day in and day out. I continued to spend a lot of my time on that project since he was our biggest client at the time. Creating a sense of team. Our company finances were good, but this wasn't what I had in mind for company culture. I had people spread all over the place. People working for one client had nothing in common with people working for another client. The projects and industries were all different, so we rarely could help each other out if someone was on another project. Quickly, 
our employees began to form affinities with their clients' companies instead of our company. I had a culture problem for sure and knew I needed to do something about it. In order to get everyone together, at least for a little bit, I started organizing company lunches. Regardless of where someone worked on a daily basis, I asked them to come to our office and we'd all go out to eat on the company's dime. At first, it was an excuse for everyone to get a free lunch and not much more than that. But I was surprised when people would tell me how much they looked forward to the company lunch. They could let their hair down a bit, reconnect with coworkers, and tell war stories about their projects and clients. Initially, I held the company lunches monthly, but quickly changed the frequency to every two weeks. It became such a good experience that we continued the tradition to this day. Every two weeks, we hold a company lunch at our main office, as well as at remote locations where there are two or more employees in proximity to each other. Wanting to continue to get our employees together and away from the daily grind of working on our clients' projects, I signed us all up to attend a conference. I was looking forward to taking the whole team, five of us by then, for a couple of days of learning, relaxing, and bonding. We booked flights for everyone, and we were off for a few days to Knoxville. It was an all-expenses-paid trip for everyone. Wining, dining, everything was included. We attended a lot of great sessions and spent a lot of time together. Since we were gone for a few days, the billable time stopped. Between the expenses and the lack of billable time, it wasn't a cheap trip. But it was great to get everyone together. As fun as the trip was and as much as it boosted morale, it didn't quite hit the mark when it came to education. Different people have different ways of learning. At the time, I learned best from conferences and from books. Others in the company learned best from videos. Most of my folks were shy and weren't comfortable being around a big group of people. Conferences, it turned out, weren't really their jam. What I thought was a great perk, going on an annual trip for an all-expenses-paid conference, wasn't what everyone else wanted. Sensing that and getting direct feedback from a few people, I decided to forego the trip the next year. Still wanting to provide a great learning environment, I worked with each employee to identify what they wanted to learn and how they learned best. One employee learned best by working on projects and requested three days of paid time off so he could teach himself a new skill that I needed someone in the company to learn. Another person wanted a membership to educational videos, and another just wanted a few books a year. All of these solutions worked great. I found that it's best to let people learn the way they want to learn instead of forcing a perk on them. I continued to try to find ways to build up the team. Another system I created was the kudos system. The idea was to foster a sense of collaboration in the team. If someone helped you on a project or a problem that you were struggling with, then you could give them kudos through our online chat program. Each person was granted 20 kudos points per week to award to anyone else in the team. They could award one point at a time or all 20 at once to one person. It was up to each person to award their points as they deemed fit. The person who was awarded the most kudos by their peers each month was awarded a $300 bonus. 
For the first year or so, I would hand out the bonus in cash. I found that handing someone $300 cash and recognizing them for their contribution in person had a big impact. That impact was amplified when I did it in front of the rest of the team. So I tried to award the bonus at one of our company lunches. The winner still had to pay taxes on the $300 cash bonus, but it was great to get that bonus in hand. As the team grew and we gained remote workers, paying in cash stopped being feasible. The accountants got confused by my cash withdrawals, and I could only award cash to local people, so we ended up simply adding it to the winner's paycheck. But we still tried to make the announcement a big deal, announcing the winner in front of the whole company during one of our all-hands meetings. We've also modified the kudos systems so that people can be recognized for contributions beyond just helping each other out. We eventually expanded the reasons for awarding kudos to be in line with our core values. Now we have to identify which core value the person has demonstrated in order for points to be awarded. Whether you work on it or not, your company will have a culture. But if you don't focus on it and shape it, it could end up being a culture that you don't like. If you find yourself in a situation where you're not happy with the way people are working together, then it's important to put practices in place to create the culture that you desire. You could follow my lead and start holding company lunches or create a system for your staff to reward each other. Most important, though, is to ensure that people get to know each other and show appreciation for working together. Although I didn't fully understand it at the time, culture is more than simply getting everyone together and creating feel-good programs. It's important that everyone adhere to a similar set of principles and how they go about their work. I was about to learn that the hard way. Firing. Firing someone sucks. No one likes to do it, and the first time you fire someone, it feels terrible. I never want to fire someone, but I need to have the right people doing the right things for the company. When it's clear that someone just isn't a fit, you owe it to yourself, to them, and to the rest of your company to release them. My first firing was anything but the textbook version of the right way to fire someone. But I'm going to share that experience now. Like the rest of Million Dollar Journey, I want you to learn from my mistakes so when you encounter a similar situation, you'll be better prepared. One of my clients reached out to me directly. At the time, we were still experimenting with the staff augmentation model. And my employee worked at the client's office on a daily basis. My client grumbled that my guy just wasn't cutting it. And my client didn't want to spend any more of his budget on the employee anymore. I went to the client's office to try to figure out what was going on and to see if I could salvage the situation. It wasn't so much a budget problem as he had little faith in my employee's ability to do the work. My employee was surprised when the client cut him. He attributed the cut to financial constraints, and I just didn't have the stomach to tell him the truth. I kept that information to myself and started to have my employee work out of the office. I didn't have anything in particular for him to work on, so I gave him random tasks for a bit until I figured things out. I felt compelled to keep him employed 
even though the reason I hired him was to work the staff augmentation contract, which it turned out he wasn't a fit for. His work, I found out once he was in the office full-time, wasn't the best. Week after week, I'd ask for progress updates, and he'd tell me he was almost done. But over and over, he didn't complete work on time, and the quality of his work was subpar. I began to compensate for him and would jump in to finish his projects. He was relieved every time I jumped in to finish his projects, but I resented it. To spare hurting his feelings, I didn't say much about how I was feeling, but I was building up a case in my mind for firing him. Quickly, I realized that there were fewer tasks that I could assign to him. After another epic failure and having run out of work I trusted to give him, it was time to have the talk. I dreaded it, but it had to be done. We met face-to-face, and I explained the issues I was having with him. It was a terrible meeting. He was surprised. He was confused. I can understand why, since it was the first time I had been totally transparent about his issues and their impact. I told him it just wasn't working out. We couldn't keep going on like this. It wasn't good for him, it wasn't good for me, and it wasn't good for the company. I let him go. I wasn't happy with the way it went down. Looking back, I realized that I had been too passive when issues came up. I had sheltered him from too many of the problems that he was causing. I learned that I owe it to employees to let them know about issues as they arise. It's no fun to tell your employee that a client isn't happy with them or that I'm unhappy about something, but there's a learning opportunity that is unfair to keep from them. I had to be fully transparent. I walked away from that first firing having learned a few valuable lessons. Number one, never keep bad news from employees. They need that feedback so they can course correct before a snowball's out of control. Number two, I should not have to fix problems that my employees create. Of course, I'll help them, but that should be the exception and not the norm. Number three, staff augmentation wasn't for me. A hands-off approach with my employees is not what I wanted. And number four, although he wasn't a fit, I had yet to articulate to the company what I expected of our employees and of myself. I wanted us to act, and in some cases not act, in certain ways. What I took as assumptions, I had yet to communicate effectively to the team. Chapter takeaways. Number one, you can only scale so much as a solopreneur. In order to grow your business, you're going to need to hire people. Number two, hiring is a huge responsibility. As the employer, you become not only responsible for your employees' financial well-being, but also for their careers. Number three, create a sense of team. Get everyone together for lunches, happy hours, video calls, or other ways for everyone to get to know each other. Number four, Provide learning opportunities. This allows employees to get better at what they do, and in turn, they'll perform better on the job. And number five, if an employee is not a fit, 
Be honest. Let them know early on and often about your concerns. Don't let them be surprised if you have to fire them. Are you a business owner looking to reach more customers and grow? Array Digital is a world-class digital marketing agency that partners with companies just like yours. We've worked with top brands throughout the country and love helping businesses generate more revenue, employ more people, and serve more customers. Reach out to find out more about our award-winning website design, SEO, advertising, and social media. You can find us online at thisisarray.com or call us at 757-333-3021.